Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. In our run-up to the premiere of Jury Duty Season 4 on February 28th, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Today, we continue our exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, Carmen and John discussed their experiences during the two days of witness testimony in March of 2020 before the trial was suspended. We also heard about how they spent the 15-month hiatus in the trial. In this episode, we hear their memories of the testimonies of the prosecution witnesses who took the stand just after the trial resumed in May of 2021. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We begin today's episode with my asking juror number 12 and jury foreperson Carmen Kliteka about her experience walking back into court as the trial resumed in May of 2021. What was your expectation when you walked into court that first day in May? Well, I was very curious to see what they had come up with. I don't know. I haven't really been in, in a lot of courtrooms, so I didn't really know like what sort of setups were available, but I thought they did a great job making do with what they had and in, in figuring something out. I was very impressed how they rearranged everything and had the, the jurors sit six feet apart in the different part of the, the courtroom uh, where the audience and the uh, journalists sit. And then the prosecution sat in the jury box and then the um, defense attorneys, they spread out in the, the area where the attorneys um, sit. And it worked. It, but, but I got to tell you, I was concerned about Mr. Durst, given, you know, his advanced age and fragile state. And, and you know, being in, in a room full of people, I was concerned that he might, he might get covid and I thought for sure, if he does get it, there's no way he's going to survive it. And as it turned out, he ultimately didn't. But he just happened to get it just as the trial was wrapping up. The first person that I'd like to talk about is Fadwa Najami, Gilbert Najami's sister. Do you remember her testimony? Oh, absolutely. Can you take me through your experience of hearing her testify and how that shaped the way you thought about the events that happened back in the early 80s? So my impression of her was what a good friend she was to Kathy Durst and how lucky Kathy was to have her as a friend. You know, she did she did more than uh, any of the law enforcement people did to work on this case. I and mean, I'm talking about like 
Michael Strzok and, and those guys. And you're referring to Gilberta. Gilberta, yeah. One of the things that struck me, and I wonder if you shared this, was that Fadwa gave a normalcy to Gilberta and her family that was missing from the narrative that had been perpetuated out there mostly by Robert Durst and Susan Berman. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the the story that they were telling is that Gilberta and her sister would have like these crazy cocaine drug parties and the actual, the description of the actual dinner that had taken place the night before Kathy died was not at all what, what they were trying to describe. It was more of like um, a family dinner, a very intimate family dinner, which was a recurring event on a regular basis. And it was sort of like a sacred time for their family. And also it was strictly for their family. The father was very protective of that time and family was uh, very, very important to them. And so the fact that they invited Kathy to that and that uh, Gilberta convinced their father to let her um, stay and that he accepted, you know, it, it showed that she was um, highly regarded as um, an extended family member. Um, and, you know, that description is polar opposite from what was being told by others. I also want to talk a bit about Peter Schwartz's recorded testimony. Tell me about your experience of that testimony. He, I got the impression he was um, very, like, mild-mannered, very kind of like a sweet guy, kept to himself. I got that impression just, like, by the way he, he talked and in the way he, he described what happened to him. And, you know, when, when he was described by the defense, they tried to make him sound like he was like this crazy, reckless guy, aggressive. But seeing him and hearing his testimony, it just it was not matching. It was not a match. It didn't make sense. And when I saw, when I saw the injuries... He had um, sustained, and, and the story that he told, it was very believable. And, you know, when the defense came over and said, well, you know, he fell on my boot, I was I was actually, like, a little bit offended to hear that. Like, really? you got to come up with something better than that. I mean, you guys are really, really expensive. You guys are exceptional defense attorneys. You're the best. I expect better than that. Tell me something better. Please. Don't insult my intelligence. There was also the testimony of Dean Cooperman, who, I'm not sure if you heard this, but passed away a few days before Robert Durst. His testimony was presented as a recorded conditional witness interview. Tell me what your impressions were of seeing his testimony. My impression of Dean Cooperman is exactly what I had pictured a dean to be. He was a thoughtful man. This is a dean who oversees a a large school and tons of, I mean, tons and tons of students. His description was exactly what I would expect. He said, 
I heard a, a voice, a, a woman, and she said she was Kathy Nurse. So, you know, I assumed it was. He had no reason not to. And that was it. Um, and, you know, he, he seemed uh, very conflicted. I could see, I could see that. I could see that he understood that what he said was sort of taken and twisted because he had said, yeah, it was Kathy Durst. So they, someone else took that information and presented it as confirmation. I could see that he didn't mean it that way and that I could see that he was conflicted by that. I think he felt bad about his statement that he said it was Kathy Durst. I think he, he felt bad of where it, that was taken. That was my impression. But I wasn't expecting anything more. They were trying to make so much more out of that than what it was. And I wasn't expecting more than that. As a former medical school student yourself, did it strike you as odd that Kathy would be calling the dean of the college? Yeah. Absolutely. You don't call the dean. You call the team that you're working with. I can't think of why a medical student would have to call the dean. They don't have really contact with the dean. Right around the same time that Dr. Cooperman testified, Peter Wilk also testified, one of Kathy's professors, I believe. And he testified that Kathy had said that she was going through a divorce that she'd experienced domestic violence and that her husband had a homicidal side to him. Do you remember his testimony? I do, yes. And did you find that credible? Yes, I did. I thought he was a credible witness and I don't think he he had any bias in, in his story. And I, I appreciated that, you know, he took notes I was impressed that he had notes and that he was able to refer to. And I was impressed that he actually like thought to himself, you know, I better write this down. I'm, I might need it later. Carrie, I, I also think that he felt a little bit of guilt maybe for not being able to help Kathy more than what he did. That was my impression. I think that there were seven or eight of Kathy's fellow Albert Einstein students that took the stand, and then there were a number of other potential witnesses who didn't testify because there was a stipulation as to what they would testify to. Can you talk about the witnesses as a group and what they what they said collectively, the things that they sort of one after another repeated that stuck with you, and anything from all of their testimony that was memorable and that landed with the other jurors or that landed with you and you were able to discuss with the other jurors? Because, you know, there were several people that from her med school class that came over to take the stand and told us a little bit about Kathy and what it was like to be in med school with her. And I was pretty moved by a couple of her classmates, one lady in particular. She was remembering seeing Kathy come to class with a black eye, and she was weeping on the stand. And this is 40 years later, and it still evoked a lot of emotion for her. 
you know, in med school, everybody's so busy just trying to survive that enormous coursework load and rotations, trying to get a residency and everything else. It's easy to get, you know, sucked into your own little world and really notice a lot of what's happening with some of your classmates. So, I mean, even given those conditions, the people that came forth, they still had very vivid memories. So, I mean, seeing her like that made a pretty big impression on them. And also, you know, they talked about, you know, what the culture was when calling in sick, which, you know, you don't call the dean. And I think that's pretty standard across medical schools. That was certainly the case in my medical school. I can't imagine calling the dean. That's just crazy. Her classmates that testified, they also said pretty much the same thing. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of the witnesses who took the stand in May of 2021 as the trial of Robert Durst resumed. The first person I'd like to talk about is Fadwa Najami, the sister of Gilberta Najami. For those of us who've been following the case for a long time, the narrative that got out there for 20 years was that Kathy had been at a party at Gilberta Najami's house and that she was quite drunk and probably using drugs. And that was a narrative, it turns out, that was spread by Robert Durst and perhaps Susan Berman at the time. I wondered how Fadwa Najami's testimony struck you, particularly about the last day of Kathy Durst's life. You know, from my recollection of her, you know, testimony, because Gilberta couldn't be there, that, you know, she was the uh, the voice of Gilberta, you know, was one of the adamant, you know, people for the um, thorough investigation of Kathy Durst's, you know, disappearance. I got the sense that, you know, the insinuations that Kathy Durst was uh, drunk or addicted, you know, to drugs, quite exaggerated. So I didn't put a lot of, uh, you know, substance to the uh, defense defense's arguments that, you know, she was. And Fadwa's, you know, testimony, you know, I think really painted um, Kathy as a uh, very, you know, vulnerable person and who is, uh, you know, trying to cope with uh, the domestic violence that she was experiencing. I just want to talk for a moment about the dinner, the evening that Kathy Durst disappeared. 
the questions that she got about use of cocaine and about the nature of the party. Do you remember that? I do recall it painted, you know, Kathy as the victim. The defense's uh, attempts to paint, you know, a different uh, picture as being uh, unsuccessful, as being uh, grasping at straws. I want to move on to the testimony of Peter Schwartz. He's the man who was apparently with Kathy and another of Kathy's friends. And Robert Durst came in and kicked Peter Schwartz in the face. Do you remember his testimony and the impact it had on you? I do. Peter Schwartz, is, he came across as being, you know, very credible, you know, and then they did show pictures of the, you know, injuries to his face. Again, he was credible. I believed, uh, you know, what, what he told us and the defense's, you know, attempt to portray the whole thing uh, as an as an accident, not, not really quite credible. So the takeaway from Peter Schwartz is, yeah, you know, Robert Durst was a mean person, you know, with a temper who wouldn't hesitate to uh, assault someone. I also found it to be one of the first times where I saw his capacity to do damage to someone, that this little frail man at one time had the strength and power to inflict that kind of injury on another man. I I think that was probably the, the most shocking physical evidence, and I'm referring to, you know, the, the pictures of his injuries, that when they were talking about, you know, Kathy's, you know, physical abuse, where, you know, Robert Durst would talk about, you know, uh, slapping and pushing, it just put a lot of those things more into, you know, con, uh, into context of how, you know, how rough he got with her. I want to move on to a group of witnesses, but beginning with Dr. Albert Cooperman, who was the dean of the Albert Einstein Medical College at the time, and who received a phone call from someone purporting to be Kathy Durst. I also want to group that together with some of the testimony from Kathy's fellow students and aspiring doctors at the time. So I want to get your thoughts and what your response was to the evidence that it was Susan Berman that called Dr. Cooperman and not Kathy Durst. From all that testimony, I guess with regards to uh, Dr. Cooperman and uh, Kathy's fellow students, my main takeaways from that is all of those uh, medical students at the time, they all had the same story that back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, medical school, there was a culture that you don't miss your rotation, you know, unless you're pretty much incapacitated, you know, on your back. I mean, they were all very uh, vocal and consistent of that, you know, description of no matter how sick you might feel, you, you don't, you don't miss showing up. So the fact that, you know, uh, basically the way that uh, Kathy's uh, symptoms were uh, described, well, allegedly by her, but, you know, I, it was obviously we all came to believe that it was indeed Susan Berman who made that phone call. So again, for the first thing was the consistent testimony from all of the different uh, medical students as to how important it was to uh, attend your rotation regardless of how bad you felt. And also the fact that it was Dr. Cooperman 
who received the call, you know, who was so far up on the in the hierarchy that it didn't make sense that he would be the person to get the call. When from a more practical, you know, standpoint, it would be whoever was the um, you know immediate uh, physician or supervisor at that rotation. I mean, that would be the first person that you would notify. You know, I always thought like you know if I worked. Uh, for the city of LA, and I wasn't, you know, going to come in, I, I wouldn't call the mayor, I would call my, you know, immediate manager. So that whole um, story that, you know, it was Kathy who made that call, not credible at all. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on the first witnesses to take the stand after the pandemic-induced hiatus. First, we are going to hear from Fadwa Najami, sister of Kathy Durst's stalwart friend, Gilberta Najami. Najami is questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian. Did Kathy's disappearance become a large part of your life due to how important it was to your sister? Yes, it did. And because of that, did some of these memories stick in your brain from that evening? Yes. How clear is your memory of this particular evening? It's pretty clear. Where was this dinner? It was at Gilberta's house at 7 Sugar Street in Newtown, Connecticut. And who else was at this dinner? It was a family dinner. It was my parents. It was my sister Sarah and, my, and her husband Jeff. And it was his brother Stan and his wife Eileen. What time was it that you guys gathered approximately from your memory? Well, uh, based on my memory and my father and my mother's habits is that they expected to eat at five. And we always kind of, particularly Gilberta, pushed that out. So I'm going to say that we were there at five and, and we probably didn't eat till six or 6.30. Okay. But this was a family gathering? It was definitely a family gathering. What type of party? Would you call it a party? No. It's dinner. Family dinner. If someone were to say to you, or ask you, was this a cocaine party or a party where cocaine was being used? What would your response be? I would laugh and say no, because my parents were there. Okay. And what about that in particular makes you want what you would laugh? Because we wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that in front of my parents. Okay. Was Kathy expected to be at this family dinner? No. Uh, were you ever made aware that she was coming to this family dinner? I don't remember. Okay. But as far as you know... Was this a situation where she was invited to come over? No, I was not aware of her being invited. Okay. Did Kathy ever show up this particular day while you guys were there? Yes, she did. So let's talk about when Kathy arrived. What, what immediately did she do when she arrived, unexpected? Um, she, went to, she needed to speak to Gilberta, and Gilberta was in the kitchen, which was closed off from the living room, and her and Kathy were in there talking. I knew that she needed to speak to Gilberta, and she was upset. Okay. What was her demeanor that told you all of these things? Her frantic way that she came in the house, and the uh, some of the discussion that I kind of overheard in the tone of voices from the kitchen. Okay. What did you overhear in that tone? That she was upset with Bobby, and that they had an argument. Okay. Next, we will hear an excerpt from the testimony of Kathy's friend, Peter Schwartz. Were there any other males in the room when Robert Durst arrived? I was the only male. What happened after you saw him? Uh, well, I was sitting there, he looked at Kathy, and then he looked over at me, and he said, 
Well, you're the only man here. Only guy here. We'll stop you there. What was his tone of voice when he said, you're the only guy here? Uh, it was threatening. What was his facial expression when he said, you're the only guy here? He looked enraged. If you know, if you recall, or even if you observe, what, if anything, was his facial expression when he first looked over towards Kenneth? Uh, he looked angry. What happened next after he said, well, you're the only guy here? He rode forward and kicked me in the eye. I was sitting on the floor with my back against the radiator. And when he rushed forward, even though I was, uh, I had my knees up and my arm over my knees, he kicked between my legs and between my arms and uh, kicked me up to the right arm from Trinidad. In case you found that last sentence difficult to make out, Schwartz said, he, as in Robert Durst, kicked between my legs and between my arms and kicked me in my right eye, fracturing it. Next, we will hear an excerpt from the testimony of Dr. Albert Cooperman, Dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The questioning, again by Deputy DA Habib Balian, is meant to offer context to the phone call Dr. Cooperman received from someone claiming to be Kathy Durst, saying that she would be absent from her first day of her rotation in ambulatory medicine. Your interactions personally with Kathleen Durst over the course of her entire medical career were approximately 10 minutes. Five to 10 minutes. Five to 10 minutes. Okay. Had you ever spoken with her on the telephone before? No. Had you ever heard her voice on an intercom before? No. Had you ever heard her voice on a recording of any kind whatsoever before? No. So are, are you able to say based on the voice that it was or wasn't Kathy Dirk? No. Why did you think it was Kathy Dirk? She said she was Kathleen Durst. She said she was Kathleen Durst. So other than a woman called with a female voice, and this person said they were Kathy Durst, was there anything else about that call itself that told you this is definitely Kathleen Durst? No. Had you ever been asked by any police officer, any detective, any prosecutor, had you ever talked to him on the phone before? No. Had you ever been asked by any police officer, any prosecutor, any detective, prior to meeting Mr. Lewin and I? No. Have you ever talked to her on the phone before? No. Prior to meeting us, had you ever been asked, how long had you talked to her in total over the four-year period? I don't believe I was asked that. Who was the first person or group of people to ask you those types of questions? You and John Lewin. We also have excerpts from the testimony of Dr. Peter Wilk, who was one of Kathy Durst's professors. Wilk had taken detailed notes when he spoke to Kathy prior to her disappearance to discuss her repeated absences from a medical clerkship. She said that she was going through a divorce, that it was a terrible. She said that she actually had been interested in surgery, that she ranked at number one. She wanted to do that, but she couldn't because of all the unpleasantness that was going on. There was violence involved, and there were court proceedings, lawyers and therapists, and it was relentless on this. Did she tell you who uh, was causing this unpleasantness? Yes. She said it was her husband. She mentioned that she had been married for eight years, that he was an older person, um, ten, ten years older, and that uh, he, we are, he was violent. You used the word that I've never heard used before. 
she said there was a homicidal side to it. And that was, that was shocking to me. It's just the concept that somebody could use that word. Hold on. As she was telling you these things, was she still shaking and trembling as you described? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Did it appear to you she was under an extreme emotional state as she was telling you these things? Yes. Do you recall she was crying? She wasn't crying. No, she wasn't. She wasn't crying. Did she, she tell you that this situation that she was describing, this fear she was expressing, was over or was currently going on? It was very much going on. This is as she expressed to you as she was trembling, shaking. Did she discuss with you, what did she tell you to the best of your memory about why she wasn't doing well in the play or showing up? She said she had to go to all these, these court proceedings, the therapists, the lawyers. It was all something that she had to do. And she mentioned one particular thing that was, was very terrible. What was that? She said that she'd been with a friend and that her husband had come in and he was in a foul mood and he attacked the friend and knocked him to the ground and was kicking him and stepping in his head. It was terrifying. She was, she was terribly traumatized. She said that, that she was sure that if she hadn't interfered, he would have killed the person. And to interfere, she threw herself on him. And he was hitting her as well as this other person until he stopped. Our final clip is from the testimony of Dr. Peter Halperin, who was a student with Kathy Durst at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and who here represents the nearly 20 witnesses that either testified or submitted affidavits in support of the idea that it was inconceivable that Kathy would have called the dean of the medical school and not called her rotation team. Any medical student who would know, especially fourth year, you know, not the first day, the very first rotation, third year, that um, the person to communicate that you're going to be absent with is the team the, the, uh, that you're uh, being assigned to as a uh, clinical rotating student. And, and that they need to know that you're not going to be there, not just because you're sort of missing class the way that might happen, you know, in anatomy, um, because you know that you're really part of a clinical team and that you might have patients assigned and that they need to know that those patients need to be reassigned, etc. And that's the person that you call. That concludes this special episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the testimonies of key figures in the investigation of Kathy Durst's disappearance. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracombe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty. <laughs>